To the one who hung the curtains of eternity, not only do we say thank you, I say we love you. We believe that your life, we believe that your light and that there is no darkness in you, that, that not, none at all. And so God, we pledge ourselves to you over and over again by the blood of Christ, which is r- really that red carpet into your presence. And so God, we pray to you because we need you. And we pray to you because without you nothing is possible. And so God, as I share today to your people, and as your people hear the word, Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, absolutely, unadulteratedly be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today I want to talk to you about the B word. And I wonder always, have any of you have any idea of which word I speak? It's a word that is extremely scary to anyone that hears it. Actually, there's numerous B words, and it can be painful when experienced, or even been, if we've been exposed to it. Many times in our lives, uh, we attempt to control and we attempt to guide our own situation in life. I think you know what I'm talking about. We feel that we are in the driver's seat of our own personal worlds, charting our own courses, and at times feeling that we are in total control of what's going on as objects blow by us at 100 miles per hour. Only to lose control. Now, have you ever lost control of a car? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Have you ever lost control of your bike? Okay, yeah, yeah. Have you ever lost control of your skateboard? Okay, yeah, yeah. That's epic fail. (laughs) What about your snowboard or your skis or your snowmobile? Ouch. Have you ever lost control when walking? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? And then what happens when we lose control? We're frantic, right? We, We overcompensate on everything. So whether it's walking or, or riding a bike or something, it's our weight or our balance. When it's the, the car or some sort of vehicle, we overcompensate on the steering wheel. And, and then, you know, we pray. And, and everybody knows how our prayer starts. Oh God, right? That's, that's how our prayer starts. Sometimes that's where it ends. And, and then everything comes to a crashing halt. Ever watch a child play with a toy with great energy, only to have that toy come to a crashing stop, either into the wall, the ceiling, the floor, or some other object in the house, usually a breakable object, including your toe, only after a brief moment of silence, you hear the child say, "Uh uh-oh, it's broke. And so broken is a very powerful word, especially when we use it to describe the current situation in which we find ourselves with our lives. Have you ever gotten to that place personally? Broken. Alone. A mess. Hurt. You know, what does it look like to you? You know, many times we talk about being hurt and we hear the saying, 
you know, all the time, all time heals all wounds. And, and somehow we believe that a, a few comforting words, a, a little sympathy will make everything all right. And, and sometimes we don't really understand when people don't seem to bounce back. You know what I'm talking about? They're not bouncing back the way that we think they should, or as soon as they, we think they should. And we believe that, you know, time should have healed your hurt by now. Uh, but we fail to understand that there's a difference, really, between hurt and being broken. And our society has children growing up in a society that has pushed them and cast them aside. And just spending this last week with, um, with Sean Chase, our speaker from last, last weekend, down, we were just downtown. And not just downtown, I'm taking a look as you read the news and you just take a look at what's going through our own city and across our nation, we see how society casts kids off. We reject them as normal or this is acceptable. We reject them from being viable members of our social order. We see that children are becoming adults and they actually have no direction in their lives. They wander aimlessly. They're bound. They're confused. They're perplexed. Some have been mentally or physically or sexually abused, feeling rejected, dejected, feeling alone. And many people in our society are increasingly mentally and physically and spiritually uh, incarcerated. And I'm not talking about our human judicial system. They are regretfully imprisoned in fear, a far more cruel and ultimately more eternal prison. They're sentenced to a life sentence of emotional emasculation or depression or anxiety or low or no self-esteem, numerous, too numerous phobias to count. And then we find that people are on the habitual death row of addictions just to cope on everyday level. Other people have been placed in solitary confinement of their physical pain or their discomfort of their diseases. They've been held captive by these seemingly impenetrable bars and inescapable walls. They feel trapped. They're made to believe that this is all there is to life. And you realize that as I'm describing this, some of these people are your neighbors. Maybe even some of us here today where we're mentally messed up, emotionally emasculated, spiritually we're lost. You know, we kind of wander through life almost aimlessly, you know, busted, disgusted, and broken. That's just how we can best describe ourselves. But we put on a great front. Our lives are shattered. Our dreams are non-existence. Uh, uh, how many times, I don't know about you, but just even this last week talking with people where their hope was gone. They, they're being tossed to and fro, bouncing from relationship to relationship and Their self-respect is broken. Their esteem is broken. Their reputation has been broken. Their innocence is broken. And they're unable to see that God really has a far more excellent and abundant life. And they're struggling to break free. They're unable to come into this freedom that is in Scripture promised to them. They're unable to understand the price of their freedom has already been paid through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't have to remain in a broken condition. Their shattered lives, our shattered lives can be put back together. They can and we can have life and have it more abundantly. But all we have to do is come and let Jesus begin to put the broken pieces of our lives back together again. 
Has anybody here been broken? You know, brokenness is a, is a very scary word. It's scary to anybody who hears it. Especially if you're a believer within the life of the church and you've been exposed to different biblical teachings and, and, and the understanding of the word broken. Because brokenness is one of these words that we, we come across throughout Scripture. And it's, it's one of those words that you wish that no one would ever tell you that God is doing to you or for you. And the last thing I want to find out is that God is the one actually doing it. You know, a lot of people, we blame things on Satan, right? You stub your toe, oh, there's a demon there somewhere that has to happen. You know, and it's easier for us if stuff goes wrong, let's just blame it on the devil. The devil does it. It's all his part. You know, and so the devil's our problem. But there's this whole other category that I want to allow you to let soak in for a bit. Where I'm going to say to you, it's not Satan who's your problem, but God who's your problem. God's my problem. What in the world are you talking about, Jerry? God's supposed to be love and give me what I want. That's right. He's the cosmic Santa Claus. That's all he does. In case you missed it, that was sarcasm. I'm just throwing it out there. See, according to the dictionary, hurt, hurt. Hurt is to be adversely, uh, to, to affect adversely, to injure, to feel pain, to become damaged or harmed. That's hurt. But broken. Broken has this richness, this depth. The Hebrew word is shabar. It means to crush into pieces, shattered, bruised, violated, not functioning properly, disconnected, overwhelmed with sorrow, plundered, maltreated. It means desecrated. Word pictures articulate beautifully. Hurt is heartbreak. It's like, you know, you and so-and-so, you, you've been dating for a while, and for some reason you break up. Well, it's heartbreak, right? It hurts you. It makes you cry. That's fine. That's normal. You're going to lose a night or two of sleep, or, you know, you're only going to eat a little bit, or, or hurt may cause you actually to miss a meal or, or two. And when you hurt, you can actually see, when you're hurt, you can actually see people and sort of smile enough to fake everybody out, right? Psych. Yeah. How are you doing? Fine. You know, we're okay. We fake it until we make it when we're hurt. And you understand that in time, this hurt is going to heal. And the pain will go away. And after some comforting words and shows of compassion, you know, we're going to be all right. We're going to get through the hurt. It's going to heal. But broken is more than just a heartbreak. But it's a broken heart, a broken body, a broken mind, and broken spirit. Hurt's going to cause you to cry. But being broken, you may want to die. And when you're broken and you begin to develop illnesses, you know, that you've never really had before, you begin to worry, you begin to have anxiety, fretfulness develops, bad tempers or, or ever-present hatred or malice begin to, these things start to rule you. And you begin to feel hopeless and, uh, and helpless. And you begin to think that you're not any good anymore. Why? Because you've been broken. You've been beaten. You've been abused. You've been used. You've been mistreated. You've been desecrated. You've been plundered. 
and deep down in your spirit, it's not just your feelings that have been hurt, but you've been broken. And some of you are resonating as I share this. And you know within yourself you're not functioning properly, but sorrow has set in deep because you've been crushed by something or someone. You know what I'm talking about? As many times in our lives we construct our lives and we sort of rig them so it's our own comfort and so we fix it for our own passions and we engineer it for our own journey and we arrange it for our own scene but what happens is is that sometimes God has taken a look at us and he goes look at you know Jerry we're not on the same page here what happens when God raises that question of hey dude I don't think we're on the same page are we what if sort of God said to us, listen, the picture that you've painted for your life, I, you know, Jerry, I don't really care that some other preacher said that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, because that usually, that plan brings this picture of two people running after each other and music playing and violin strings and all this other stuff that in reality is not real. Because none of us, not even prairie farmers run like that. And, and, and as a pastor and as a fellow believer, I wish I wish I could tell you that you're not going to face any more of life's storms from the moment that you choose to follow Jesus. I wish I could tell you that life was going to be nothing but smooth sailing until one day we will just simply sail into the sunset of the tranquil sea of this life right into heaven without pain, without suffering, without worry, without fear, without doubt. But I can't. But what I can tell you is that even though the storms will surely come, that there is still a reason to rejoice. That in the midst of any storm, your heart actually can be made to sing for joy. That in the midst of trouble, even though you don't understand it, you can find perfect peace. In the midst of trials, when they come, you can lift up your head in hope, regardless of the trial. And in the midst of suffering, that you can rest in confidence that everything's going to be all right. Well, how can that be? You know, what kind of power can give that kind of peace, that kind of joy, that kind of confidence, that kind of hope? Well, there is only one source of that power, and it's found in serving Jesus Christ. And it's allowing Him to be the shaper of our souls, shaping us through life experiences. Listen, the sovereignty of God means that there will be a whole lot more to life that we won't understand or that we can make sense of. So then why do we continue to wonder and to question him? I don't have a problem with asking questions. But why live our lives under the unknown and spend our time searching for what we may never fully comprehend or living under a shroud of what we don't know? But why not turn our attention to what we do know and find hope in that? 
So listen, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're going to walk in the implications of this thing that we call the gospel, then you're going to have to have an understanding of the principle of brokenness, which is actually poured out through all of Scripture. In the books of Psalms, it gives us a working definition of, of brokenness. In Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Listen to this. Especially if you're brokenhearted today, the Lord is near you. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so what these passages are talking about is that God likes people, think about this, who are broken. How many times when we're broken and bust up, we think that everybody hates us? quite the opposite in scripture and the question is what does it mean to be broken in the hebrew mind as we read scriptures we see that the word heart and what it meant heart meant the mind the emotions and the will and so the mind is where our value system is the emotion is where our passions are and the will is you know where we take those two together and actually begin to to live them out and everything is based together and there's an equilibrium in it all. So when we have God saying through the psalmist that he likes people whose values are broken, whose passions are broken, whose will is broken, is he says that he is near these people. He loves people who are personally broken in their values and in their passions and now broken in their will. And this idea of brokenness now begins this idea of being open and repair. Open to what God now wants to do in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul begins to talk about how brokenness is the mark of a person that is qualified to be used by God. Take some time, go home and read it. If you don't have a Bible, we have them at the info desk. Steal one, please. It's yours. Tell the person next to you, I don't have a Bible. They'll steal it for you. That's okay. Paul begins to talk about how brokenness is the mark of a person that's qualified to be used by God. And he says that if you're not broken, then you're not using yourself for your, you know, your, sorry, you're using yourself for your own personal efforts, for your own personal dreams, and for your own personal passions. And by the end of the day, people who are actually being used by God in a crazy way are people who have been busted up, and God is doing something through them. God is doing something through people who are broken and understand that. And the word broken throughout the Psalms can mean shattered, crushed, maimed, devoid of, of arrogance, wounded, contrite, injured, smashed, grieved, distressed, crippled, wrecked, demolished, fractured, handicapped, and disabled. Powerful word pictures. And brokenness based on those scriptures is a spiritual state where we're disarmed of our own self-dependence and our pride. And, and it leaves us disabled and desperate in need of help. And it makes us open to what God wants to do in our lives. And so maybe you've come in here broken today. I'll say this. God wants to do something in your life. Are you open to it? God wants people to...
to have been totally smashed off their own personal pursuits to pursue him. And sometimes we don't understand why we're being led through the deserts of life when it may be that God is simply testing our hearts to see whether or not we're willing to fully trust him and follow his ways. Listen to me, despite our circumstances. In Isaiah 61, we read, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, and they will be called cloaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of of his splendor. It's this same passage that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 about himself. And our text says that God is going to appoint someone who will console those who are broken. And in Luke, Jesus picks up on that and he says that he is the one that God is talking about in here. And there is enough of God to comfort all who mourn in this world. But scripture specifically states that Jesus is on this mission of healing Those who are broken, people who are at various stages of difficulty will surely get his attention. Why? Because he loves the brokenhearted. He's filled with compassion for them. And if there is anybody who I want to have my attention, it's God. I want God's eyes upon me. I want his ear turned to my cry when I call out. I want to be underneath the umbrella of his protection. I want, as scripture says, to be in the secret place of the Most High. Don't you? And then the Bible gives us another B word. Of course, Bob and Doug McKenzie start running through my head when I was thinking about this. Beauty, eh? Beauty. That's what it says, beauty. You notice in verse 3 in Isaiah 61, what it's saying here, that God will give us beauty for ashes. And in Bible times, it was the custom for people of that day, you know, in times of mourning, in times of difficulty, they actually covered themselves in ash. Just think about that. Think about if we did that today. You got a problem today? You're covering yourself in ash. You just sort of sit down in the ash and cover yourself. There's nothing beautiful about ashes. But the scripture says he's going to take your difficult, your disgusting, your depressing, your horrible situation, the ash that you're sitting in, and what does he do? Scripture says he gives you beauty. He's going to pick you up out of the pile of ash and make something beautiful out of you. Are you sitting in ashes right now? I don't believe you, Jerry. Oh, really? Watch this. I grew up in, in a really beautiful neighborhood in North Toronto. I remember going to school. I remember loving the school that I was at. I remember my neighborhood, the parks, um, all the things we did as a family. My mom was struggling with, she's a school teacher, my dad was a professor, and my mom was struggling quietly with mental illness with bipolar disorder and somewhere along the line she had started drinking as a coping 
strategy. We didn't realize how bad that was for, for some years later. Things seemed to be taking a turn for the better and there seemed like there was hope. I just remember in December of 1979, I was seven years old and, and I remember a day, two days before Christmas, we, we went to the museum. There's a big exhibit on. And we came home. It had been an awesome day. And my dad said, okay, well, Sean, go up and get your mom for dinner. She's just having a nap, a rest. And, and I went upstairs to that bedroom and, um, you know, and I, I saw my mom laying there sleeping and, um, you know, I began to shake her shoulder. Mom, wake up, mom, wake up. And, and I couldn't wake her up. And, and I went downstairs and um, was, was, was crying and said, I can't wake her up, Dad. And my dad came upstairs and, and called 911. And that evening, my mom um, had her stomach pumped out a number of times, but, but she didn't make it. My mom died that night. You know, one of the saddest things through that was, you know, I really kind of lost uh, my mom and had a big piece of my dad on that same day. It wouldn't be long until at school I was diagnosed with both a learning disability and a behavior disorder. I was looking for every way to act out. I was looking for attention from all the wrong places. I was struggling to belong. I was hurting so much inside. Things continued to really fall apart at home. On my 16th birthday, I left and I just started to run. And I ran and I ran. By the time I was 18, I had made my way, or 19, I had made my way right across the country, stopping in places all along the way. I ended up in, in Tofino because there's no further west coast to go. I ran out of country and, and there I just continued into this slippery slope of drinking and all kinds of drugs, a party lifestyle. I was running from this pain and yet I, I couldn't get away no matter where I went. My world totally collapsed in on itself. I found myself at 26 years of age out on the streets of Vancouver, broken, homeless, hopelessly addicted and lost. I had nowhere to turn, nowhere to go, nowhere to stay. And I just kept on using. My ways and means to use had gotten a lot more dangerous than my early years. I was stealing, I was breaking into vehicles. I was always getting picked up and arrested and held overnight. It was the early spring of, of 2000 and um, I was on the streets of Victoria I was staying in, in shelters. And Sunday after Sunday, I found myself down eating soup and bread out of the back of, uh, of a family's minivan down at the whale wall, right at the Johnson Street Bridge in Victoria. There was this family, I, I, I couldn't figure them out. This husband and wife, and they had um, six little kids ranging in age from, you know, zero to uh, like a 10-year-old. 
And Sunday after Sunday, this family just kept coming out. And, and I would join this ragged line of homeless street people. And I'd eat this soup. And one Sunday, the husband, Mark, he, he remembered my name. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Sean, what are you doing down here? And I just, I just broke down. I said, I just started crying and I said, I said, I don't know. I have no idea. I said, I'm hopelessly addicted. I'm totally lost and there's no hope. That day he and his wife invited me to, to their home and I went and they brought me into their house and I think the first thing they did was they made me have a shower because, you know, I was pretty rough and they took all my clothes and they washed them and they gave me big sweatpants. But, you know, that day I, I played basketball with their oldest son and you know, <laughs> I, I held, their, held their baby girl. They did something incredible that day. They, um, they said, you know, we're... We're gonna, we're gonna go to church, and you're gonna come with us. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it. I'd been out on the street for, you know, the better part of two years, and I had received so many pairs of socks, and I had received, I mean, free syringes and crack pipes. I had received sandwiches and coffee all the time, and. And along that time, I'd never been invited into a place like this. I'd never been invited into a church. So Mark and Ramona said, Sean, we're going to church and you're coming with us. I said, oh, okay, I'd never been to church. I had no idea what, what that meant. I had no idea what that looked like. And I went with them to church, this little rented out hall, downtown Victoria in the West End. And I walked into this place, there was music, there were people like dancing and waving flags, it was pretty wild. But you know, I sat through that service and, and I don't remember anything that that pastor talked about, not a single thing, except I just kept hearing again and again and again. I just kept hearing this name, Jesus. I just kept hearing Jesus again and again. And at the end of the service, the, the pastor, he, he invited to the front. He said, anybody that wants to make a decision for Jesus, anybody that wants to get up and, and have a transformed life, I want you, he said, to come to the front of this church. And in that moment, I knew I'd never get out of my chair. I knew in a million years, there was nothing that was gonna drag or pull me out of my chair. I was gonna stay there. Then something happened. And all of a sudden, I found myself at the front of this little church. I found myself there and I just stayed there. I have no idea how long I was there for, but I just was weeping. And the pastor, he, he came over to me and he you know, asked me a few questions. And, and I said, my name's Sean, I'm, I'm hopelessly addicted. I live on the streets. I just said, there's no hope for my life. And he said, <laughs> he said to me, no, he said, today there's hope for your life. He said, today there's hope. 
And he laid his hands on me and he led me in a prayer and he said, today is a day you're gonna find hope. I just kept hearing again and again in my heart, choose me, choose me, choose me. And I knew it was Jesus speaking into my heart. And I said, I can't choose you, Jesus. I don't know you. And in that moment, in that moment, I heard the words in my heart that I'll never forget. And Jesus said, I know you don't know me, but he said, I've always known you. <laughs> All of a sudden I found myself in attending every single day I was attending support groups. I was living in a Christian recovery house. I was working with a Christian psychiatrist who was helping me through the depression and all the anxiety and dealing with the brokenness. I, it was incredible. I had no idea how I was doing it, but in the midst of the struggles and the midst of the challenges, I just stayed clean and sober. For the first time in my life, I just began to stay clean and sober. Right near the beginning of my recovery, I walked into a big church near my house, Glad Tidings. I had, I was so nervous, I had no idea what to expect. I was assuming I was gonna find judgment or all kinds of things. There was nothing of the sort. People embraced me, I was loved, I was accepted. I ran full throttle right into the church. I mean, I was that guy that had like crazy blue hair. I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. I joined the church choir, wore my gown, had angel wings on during that Christmas performances. I was on, so on fire for Jesus. Nobody wanted to talk about Jesus more than me. I shared Jesus with everybody. He did this incredible thing. He began to change my life. He began to move in my heart. He took over those desires. He just broke those strongholds, those areas that I couldn't break. He began to do it. I met the most beautiful girl in the church choir, Julie, and I married her. And uh, I was going to university. God had put in my heart a desire to want to work and help people coming through brokenness. And uh, finished my degree. We had a baby. I, I began a, a recovery group at Glad Tidings. And all of a sudden, people just started coming out of the woodwork. People just began appearing. And, we rolled into the Celebrate Recovery materials and, and we found them to be awesome. They were just a great process for transformation. We began to walk with so many people through these areas of brokenness. I mean, not just like me, it wasn't just alcohol, drugs, and anger and frustration. There were so many people coming out that just began to find freedom like me through that brokenness. It's been an awesome and amazing journey. I have no idea how it is that, that God took me from just street entrenched, hopelessly addicted, completely broken. I have no idea how he took that train wreck of a life, this smoldering pile of ashes, and how he lifted that up, took that into his hands and made something absolutely beautiful out of it. I don't need to know the why but or the how, but I'm so grateful that he did. Jesus has changed my life.
You may feel that maybe your life is ugly and insignificant right now, but sometimes things that appear ugly just need the right climate to grow. There's this plant called the century plant. has numerous dis- different species. And another name for it is the agave americana. I um, this down in Mexico last year. This plant grows for years. It has these thick, coarse leaves. kind of looks like a cactus of sorts. And I'm sure many of you have seen this plant or a derivative from its family. And these leaves can get to be like three inches thick, and they're very long, and, and puts out these sharp thorns. But it's, uh, honestly, it's an ugly plant. It really is, in my opinion, anyway. And the longer it's alive, the more it grows. And in my opinion, the uglier it gets all the time. And it just grows and grows. That's why they call it the century plant. And so, uh, you know. But suddenly, as I found out, it shoots up in just a couple of days, this great tall stalk. And this thing begins to grow and it begins to seed with thousands of flowers and this ugly looking plant becomes a tree-like plant that is incredibly beautiful and the possibility of all that fragrant beauty was always in that detestable ugliness right just as the fragrant beauty of your life is sometimes hidden underneath our calloused ritual we, we hide things, right, with our daily schedules, our monotonous grinds, and sometimes painful experiences when we break, cause beauty to come forward, like in Sean's story. Jesus said that he'll give you beauty for ashes, and God knew that we would be burned by life experiences. He also knew that he could replace that burnt-out mess with things that are beautiful, with something beautiful. And I remember hearing my dad sing this song, and it goes like this. Something beautiful, something good, all my confusion, he understood. All I have to offer him is brokenness and strife because Jesus made something beautiful of my life. And I still hear my dad sing those words, be in the basement playing with his stamps. And what I realize is that whatever God touches becomes beautiful. And I don't know your situation, and I don't know who's here, but maybe you just need a touch from the master's hand because Ecclesiastes says he made everything beautiful in his time. And when we look at scriptures, we see people in the midst of their brokenness and their hardships, and what do we do? Or what do they do? They cry out to God. We saw that with Job in his life, and he is just a total mess. What does scripture say he does? He falls down and he praises God. Daniel ends up in a lion's den. What does he do? He prays and thanks God. The apostle Paul is beaten, thrown into prison, and he writes while he's there, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Isaiah, as we read, talks about the oil of joy for mourning. Oil was used to apply to the face to make it shine. It was perfume-like. 
It was, it was the perfume of the day, but when people were in mourning, there was obviously no oil to be applied to the face so that you knew a person was mourning, so that you knew a person was broken. And so scripture says, you know, he gave you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy. The oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. And this makes something beautiful out of the dust, out of the ashes of our lives. And as you continue to read that little bit, we see that we receive what is known as a garment of praise. Put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Have you ever thought what the spirit of heaviness is? I believe that it's stuff like inner hurts. It could be depression, despair, dejection, hopelessness, brokenhearted, suicidal tendencies, self-pity, excessive mourning, insomnia, sorrow, grief, bitterness, being unthankful. And if we think about it, the spirit of heaviness will attempt to steal our joy. How many of us are, are, you know, you, you hang out with joy suckers. You know who those people are? They just suck the life right out of you. And so what happens is when people suck out the life out of us or when circumstances suck the life out of us, the joy out of us, we have a tendency to move into self-pity. And so when he says, put on the garment of praise, we need to literally clothe ourselves in praise. The praise of God, we have to put it on. Every morning, every morning you and I decide what we wear. Well, do we decide to put on the garment of praise? In the same way, we need to decide to do that. The Hebrew word for garment was more than just something draped around our shoulders. You know, it was more than just this. This was not the garment. The garment of praise that it's talking about, literally to wrap, and if this was big enough, I'd wrap myself up as much as I could so that nothing was showing. Why? So that no holes would be there for any hostile spirits to penetrate. The idea is to cover yourself in the praise of God. And when you are under heaviness or depressed or in despair or dejected, you have your inner hurts, your hopelessness, your broken heart, it's a matter of our will if we decide to turn it over to God. The Hebrew word tehillah, it means to sing praise. It is used in Psalm 22 where it says, God inhabits the praises of his people. God manifests himself in the midst of exuberant singing. You know, from one pastor to a community, that's why we need to liven up Sunday morning. Just throwing it out there. There's a story of a rabbi who told his people that if they would study the Torah, the Old Testament, that it would put scripture on their hearts. One of them asked, why, why on our hearts, rabbi, why, and not in them? And the rabbi answered like this. He said simply, only God can put scripture inside. But reading the sacred text can put it on your heart. And when your heart breaks, the holy words fall inside. How many people are broken or searching or running and looking for something and not finding it, and it leads to two options? One, you could just decide to give in to the aching frustration and stop wandering and simply proclaim that there is no God and that we are masters of our own universe and life sucks and this is it, this is our own life. There's no hope, no love, no life. And the only reality we see it, it and, and as Bertrand Russell said, it's the question of life's purpose is meaningless. It's a great way to look at life. 
The other option, I'll be honest, is harder, painfully risky, and in my opinion, not so easy to swallow. But it's to stay on the journey. It's to believe into God, and it's to trust that while we still haven't found what we are looking for, you too, that something's already happening in our lives, in our souls. And yes, at times it's hard to stay in the darkness and embrace the journey. We don't like that. And yet, it's at, this is the option full of hope and promise. Full of a hope that is nurtured by the belief that the divine is sparking in us. And in the world and beyond this world. And it can never be killed. Not by darkness, not by denial or any coldness of reality but Jesus is there and active the death of Jesus makes makes it possible that our death to our old lives and his resurrection brings us into a new life in a new world to be set free to be transformed into the people that God has created and Jesus redeemed us to be on this journey that is not yet finished Sean's story can be yours if you turn your life over. Although maybe nobody else sees it, there may be that God-shaped hole in your heart. And you might know, I've not known that it's there, but it's there now. But so what do you do as you hear me speaking? Have you covered your brokenness up in a, a variety of ways and something that you've managed pretty well, but you've always known that something's missing? Maybe this is the piece of the puzzle. And so I simply ask a simple question to you today, whoever's listening, want to make a decision for Christ? Do you want a transformed life? And today I believe there's hope for you. And everybody here, all of us, need to be in a place where we are allowing the reality of God's work in our lives to impact and affect us. And I love what Sean said. People gave me... Everything else, they gave me needles, a crack pipe, they gave me food, soup, sandwiches. But nobody asked me to come to church. My challenge to you, Soul Sanctuary, is to bring somebody. The worst thing they're going to do is say no. I need to say this, kudos on Joe and his team. I'm sitting in a meeting with a lawyer this week. She looks across the table and I think floored the other three of us sitting around the table. When she said, my son got an invite to your Halloween dance. The only way that kid got an invite was because of the kids that sit in this row. And our youth are leading a charge for our church. And so I challenge you as adults to bring people to hear a life-changing message of Jesus Christ. We will be starting a Celebrate Recovery program for people dealing with deep brokenness and January. Those who came to the training, you'll be getting emails and information of what's going on. But those who are here today, if you want to make a decision for Christ today, I want to tell you that there is hope for you. And I need you to hear that the Bible says that God is near to the brokenhearted. He hears your prayers. Where do I go from there? You can go from there a number of ways. Some people play it safe. Fill out one of these cards. Take it to the information desk. Take the weekly home with you. You'll notice our contact numbers are on the weekly. Contact us. Say, I want to know more about Jesus. Or maybe you came with somebody. Take a look at them and say, you've got to take me out for lunch because I'm going to ask you about Jesus. Or you come and talk to me right after. 
Henry Backlibby writes, he puts it this way. Joe, if your team can come up. When God invites you to join with him in his work, he has a God-sized assignment for you. Sean goes from the street to now on pastoral staff, ahead of a recovery program. You will realize that you cannot do it on your own. If God doesn't help you, you will fail. And this is the crisis point where many decide not to follow what they sense God is leading them to do. Isn't that interesting? God leads us to do stuff. Then they wonder why they don't experience God's presence and activity the way that other Christians do. God's leading you? Do it. Remember the Bibles? Do it. Give somebody a Bible. Invite somebody to community, to church. Just do it. Share your faith. Do it. Pray for somebody who needs it in the office. Can I pray with you? I've never had anybody say, no, you can't pray for me. Never. Do it. Gracious God, all around me, people are suffering. And when I turn from my own problems, I feel the sorrow for the problems of others. Through the news, the media, my conversations, we are confronted with the pain and suffering of so many innocent people in our lives and in this world. And suffering seems to eagerly eat at the edges of life until people are worn down with the sadness of despair. God, even though I don't understand the reasons of suffering, I believe that you are a God of love, a God of compassion, and I pray that you will be with all those today that are in pain, who suffer silently and alone, who feel abandoned and left by the side of life's road, who are, as they would describe, broken this morning. And I ask that you'd wrap your arms of grace around them until they know that they are safely held in your embrace. Maybe this morning you're just calling out to Jesus to help you, to transform you, and to heal you. And let me just tell you, he hears your prayer. I pray that you'll fill all of our hearts with compassion. And give us the eyes to see how we can lovingly be a part of other people's healing. And I ask this for the sake of your great love. Amen. Why don't you stand with me in ancient times, the one who blessed, extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing would do likewise. If you want a blessing before you go, just put your hands in the air. And secondly, if you can take the cards and put them on the end of the thing and help us stack chairs, if you're able-bodied, give us about 10 minutes, I'd appreciate it. People, may God use your situation to direct you. So sanctuary, may God use your situation to inspect you. And may God use your situation to out-correct you. But may God use your situation to protect you. And finally, soul sanctuary, as you walk out of here, may God use your situation to perfect you. Next week, part two. See you next week.